Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about practical of our module centration. If you listened to our first one, we talked about the simple premise that centration is the idea of centering in a joint. And we're trying to utilize that strategy to create more stability within more compound or multi-joint movements. In a practical section, we're going to talk about really how that applies to certain movements. The heavier it is, the faster it is, the longer it goes, the more we need to utilize strategies that will require us to be able to stabilize certain joints to allow us to do other things at a higher level. So simply put, this is a strategy we'll use during threshold to maximize performance and minimize injury risk. This is an amazing strategy. I'm really looking forward to diving into this. We have a lot of great videos and captions and breaking down of those videos within the module. Highly recommend you get on there as well as check out all of the other resources at phpodcast.com. I remember the first time I really dived into the idea of packing a joint after watching Charlie Weingroff's video on regressions and lateralizations. And one of the thoughts that came to my mind about this like packed neck was how much control do we really have of our joints that we're not working? So I'm going to go into this in a more, in a really practical way, thinking about what does it really mean when we start to move joints that aren't part of the targeted pattern, right? So create a visual here, right? Thinking about something as like a squat or a hinge, right? Let's say that we're doing a goblet squat. Let's say we're doing a kettlebell deadlift. And the things that we see should be centered around either the knee joint or the hip joint. So if I'm squatting, it should be knee dominant. I'm going to say that again. Squatting should be knee dominant. And this is a common thread that I see a lot of, well, if I alter my position and make it more hip dominant, I can generate more force. That's a misconception. You can use more load, but not necessarily generate more force because what we see a lot is this amendment not only to your knee flexion, with a corresponding more hip flexion and then more of a inverted torso, we see greater absolute load potential, but we don't necessarily see an increasing in corresponding force. And where I say that from, if you put it on a force plate and you look at that squat and you say the distribution of load is heavier, but you don't necessarily see greater force outputs because we can see that from the vector in which you're working, because one of the keys behind a more vertical shin, hip, back, inverted torso is this shifting or center of their mass and then aligning mechanical tension elsewhere, decreasing force, at least through the quadriceps. And then going into the next level, looking at a, looking at a hip dominant pattern like a, like a deadlift or a hinge. And one of the things that we see a lot with deadlifts is the inversion of that, right? We start to see this get to this really hard sticking point where we're mechanically weak or we've just been under tension for a long time and we start to shift our knees forward trying to take the stress and shift our center of mass forward to try to complete a deadlift of sorts, right? You don't see that necessarily with kettlebells, but you definitely see it with a barbell. And when you really look at it from the context of the barbell and it's loading, 
and its ability to impact forces on the tissues that are trying to be contractile, used as contractile tissue in the targeted area around those muscle groups, we start to see these amendments and aberrant motions. And I want to be clear on this, and I've talked about this a lot with the general concept of Bernstein's law of no two movements are the same. You know, each movement is a beautiful snowflake. That aberrant actions are not to be celebrated, right? If we think about the, the control and the execution of the standards, essentially it's putting constraints on our training program to see the impact, therefore, of our training program. So if we're really thinking about centration, and we're thinking about this concept as a means to generate more force, we can equally look at it as a control to a larger, more aggregate research method that we're trying to apply to our training to really get a good reading or a good indication of whether that training program is effective or not. Right? Chaos is something that we want to prepare for by having as much awareness and understanding of what the system can handle. I hate this notion that we're going to meet chaos with chaos. I think it is a silly, misguided perception of what training really is. If we have a cancer in the body and the body is just proliferating cancerous tissues, one of the things that the body, that a response to that might be applying some chemotherapy or radiation. And hopefully that stops the proliferation of cancerous cells, along with stopping other proliferation and growth of other cells. But the truth of the matter is that's a premise. And what that really is, trying to put a constraint on the system. Cancer is the manifestation of chaos within the body, right? We have reached some sort of critical threshold and the body can no longer, no longer stop the proliferation of cancerous tissues and the regeneration of positive immune markers or whatever else is going on. Same thing with injury. Injury is your body's capacity being superseded by the demand placed on it. We talked about that in variability. This is the whole point of variability. That chaos, albeit, is something that is inevitable, that we're always moving to a, a gradual state of disorganization or entropy, that we are playing and, and working within three-dimensional, multivariate, unpredictable environments constantly, it doesn't necessarily mean that our training should be reflective of that, that it should just be completely open-sided, completely, just open games and looking at it from the context that everything we need to do is, needs to be unpredictable. In fact, it should be quite the opposite because if I can't control something that's very simple to control in a high constrained environment like packing my neck or rotating my, my humerus outward or rotating my femur outward to create more stability within my shoulder, cervical, cervical spine and hip joint to express more force or power, then what is that going to happen when I actually get to an open environment? Do you think I'm all of a sudden miraculously going to line myself up and figure it out? I think that's the thing we need to look at. It's fractal. I can't control something in a controlled environment, so how am I going to control it in an uncontrolled environment? And then it goes into this whole other level of, of yes, on one end of the spectrum, there's this notion that we need to prepare for chaos and then overly constraining our environments is counterproductive, which is, again, as I said before, false. It's not true. 
But on the other end, it goes into this, well, if I overly constrain the environment, then I need to, then I can utilize heavier external forces or external loads, and that will greater prepare us for training. If it was, if it was 100% correlated to performance, and that's a misconception in itself as well, that I can take this packing of a joint and go to the other extreme, right? That I could take joints away and I could get into really stable, stable, strong environments where I could generate a lot of, or have a lot of mechanical advantage and have a lot of external load, right? And I, and I guess I get the notion for me doesn't make sense because at a certain point, if it was 100% externally loaded driven, and we utilize or adopt strategies that give us mechanical advantage and take tension off the muscle groups that are targeted from these movement patterns, why not just put them on a leg press? Why not just put them on a seated row, seated machine row? Why not just put them in really constrained environments where they can generate high amounts of external load, or can respond to high amounts of external load? The notion that external load is is the panacea of performance is also misguided as well. So there's a sweet spot here. There's somewhere in between. There's somewhere in between, and we need to find ways to continuously challenge that, that force length, force tension, active range of motion or flexibility, passive range of, or, or passive range of motion or flexibility or act to compared to active range of motion or mobility continuum that all these things are interplaying at all times and one of the things that we've talked about thus far with our movement modules is this idea of from frc looking at it from do i have a enough capsular space to allow for fluids to move freely therefore kind of making the notion that levers are really not existent do I have the passive extensibility of the tissues, connective tissue and contractile tissue around that joint? Meaning, do I have flexibility? Do I have the active range of motion of the connective tissue and contractile tissue? Meaning that I have mobility. And then can I apply that in a, th in a movement pattern that orients itself in a three-dimensional world? I know that's a lot to unpack, but I would tell you this. If you ever do something like a function movement screen, which has seven screens, looking at the primary locomotive patterns and going through the transitional patterns from a baby to an upright bipedal adult, do you have control? It's largely predicated off the foundation of do you have the, the space, flexibility, mobility, and then can you control certain joints? And this is where really centration comes from the dynamic neuromuscular stabilization world, the DNS world, the foundation for FMS, and looking at it from the context of, as a child has to learn how to locomote and move, they have to use the tools at their disposal. They don't have enough contractile ability to be able to get upright. They don't have the coordination balance stability to orient themselves as upright homo sapien walking around on two feet. So they need to learn how to leverage taking joints away or packing certain joints. One of the things you could look into is Tim Anderson's original strength and looking at the transitional patterns of, of 
a supine to prone position by learning how to multi-segmental roll, which is also an FMS principle. Can you do an upper body or lower body or upper and lower body segmental roll? You can practice this either through segmental rolling or you can practice this through just get-ups and transitional patterns, right? And you'll see it, right? You'll, you, you can watch dead bugs or bird dogs or anything that's like going from this, this supine to prone to quadruped type of transition. And you can just see it to see how they transition, see how they, they orient in these positions. And one of the things that you'll notice is, is this cross body symmetry that like either it's, it's either creating tensegrity effect of compression and tension along the spiral back line or the spiral front line. It's either creating these like tension compression type of setups between ipsilateral lines, you know, the, the side line or the back line or the front line. And then it's going into this whole other play of can we control the joints at our disposal, right? So a big powerful cue when you're watching someone struggling struggling with dead bug is to teach them how to irradiate or create create stability in one joint while they turn, try to access and move another joint. This is where reactive neuromuscular training comes in and creating, feeding the dysfunction. This is where preloading comes in or giving some sort of feedback of where we want to create stability while we're trying to access mobility or flexibility in other joints. And I think when we start to looking at this stuff, we can start to, hopefully you're getting a big 10,000 foot view of this, of what does a movement pattern really look like? And what does a hand or a squat or a lunge, and I'm going to reserve not talking a lot about the upper body patterns of horizontal and vertical pushing and pulling, I'm going to really just focus on this idea of of these, you got to have ass to kick ass, you got to have lower body power, strength, and capacity. So let's start to just focus on that. And can you express force, velocity, and work in a controlled manner, especially as we start to reach threshold, or especially as we start to learn a new movement, or we start to add a variance to that movement. And the things that I think about when I'm looking at that person who's upright trying to Hinge, squat, lunge, and lunge is kind of this, this junk term that we throw in there for a asymmetrical squat, like a split squat, or a asymmetrical wide, like a lateral squat or lateral lunge, or asymmetrically post asymmetrically transverse oriented, looking at like a posterior lateral lunge or squat, or looking at a anterior medial lunge or squat and you're looking at this from a vector standpoint and a a orient of the, the lead foot but when we're thinking about these big global patterns and trying to target specific joints within those patterns and this is kind of goes from a, a joint specific movement pattern oriented thing into a well are we creating tension in the right muscle groups yes or no and if we can't create tension in the muscle groups, is that because of a motor pattern or because a mechanically weak, or a mechanically weak muscle group? And that's a pretty heavy thought. Because if you see anybody ever do a forward lunge or, or a low bar back squat or a very like squatty hinge, you'll notice that 
it's either a motor control problem or a just a a muscular tension problem. And I don't think anyone's smart enough or capable enough or equipped enough to make that decision as quickly as we like. So it goes into this connotation that, well, if I strip away certain joints or if I learn how to create stability in certain joints, do I have a better indication off of it is a motor pattern problem or a strength problem? And that's what I think about centration. And I'm sorry for the long preamble on this, but you know, we've worked really hard through all these movement modules of going through force length, variability, flexibility, mobility, space, fluid dynamics. And now we're kind of getting into the final stages here. This idea of movement patterns and taking the baton and looking at it from isolated joint actions and isolated range of motion of those joints only can get us so far. As that essentially, we need to start to progress or get something going in regards to in terms of movement patterns. We need to understand the limitations of those movement patterns, that they're not the panacea that if we just find incredible amounts of external load, we're going to reach incredible levels of performance. But there's also not the other end of the spectrum either of we can't just be so random and chaotic that eventually and hope it's going to translate. We created no constraints or controls to test our intervention. The rubber's got to hit the road with our, and it's got to come down to our movement patterns and our ability to control those movement patterns and our ability to create variance for those movement patterns while still getting some sort of functional out, input-output type of dynamic. Are we stronger, faster, or can be able to go longer? And we need to be able to constrain and control those joints and things that are not related in order to test that. So if we are thinking about this from a global movement pattern perspective, squat, hinge, lunge, and we can't control a certain joint, we are shifting mechanical advantage to, or mechanical disadvantage to a mechanically advantaged position. We are taking tension off the muscle group. At the end of that intervention, we've completed the assignment of finishing up the patterns with whatever prescription of sets, reps, tempo, rest, intensity. And then we go into this next level of did it or did it work? Are athletes more resilient and more capable when they're out there in the field of competition? Yes or no? And we say, okay, wow, okay, we did the assignment. We've did all of our prescription. And the athletes actually started to adopt a strategy that was, was off the beaten path, right? That we were doing a pull-up protocol where people really struggled to complete, so they started to swing and create momentum. We started to do a super high-intensity, high-volume, high-tonnage strategy for squatting. So the athletes started to lower the bar on their back, push their head up, and push their butt back, and started to complete the motion there. We talked about this from a range of motion perspective. Maybe they altered their range of motion as well. And when we got to a certain level of threshold of lunging or, or hinging, you know, the athletes started to figure out ways to complete the task. And that's where it gets a little dicey because risk goes up from those movement patterns and the performance gained from those movement patterns is now altered. 
And I wish we could say that we live in a perfect world, that all we're doing is just basically going from A to B, but we've adopted a lot of the mindset of these restrict, overly restricted environments like machines or taking professional, professional lifting athletes and using their methods and saying that, yeah, this is, this is something that we should be easily able to adopt and really assimilate to our environments and we should be fine. But we know that's not the case. And this is where I think it comes back full circle of, well, if we screened it, if we tested it, if we know that they have the appropriate pre-range of motion from a flexibility, mobility, space standpoint, how do we really know if the movement patterns are creating this functional output? And we need to have a further thing to really assess that. And we need to look at it, yes, movement's not muscles, but what are the muscles being targeted from those movements? And if we start to distribute forces away from those muscles because mechanically we are not strong enough or capable enough from a motor pattern perspective to create tension there, then we're not gonna get the targeted outcome. So when we're squatting, can I control my cervical spine? Can I control my hips? And I would ask, yeah, I'm sure you could utilize the strategy of pushing your butt back and picking your head up and keeping your shins vertical when you squat. And when you reach certain levels, yeah, I think that strategy is always gonna be there, personally, I really do. I think people organically will go to that. I think people if without any kind of stipulation of, hey, you need to do a better job from your position standpoint you need to have this perspective of if I don't correct the movement pattern and have some controls in the movement pattern what I'm going to get from that pattern is largely going to be undetermined and largely going to be just a, a kind of a futile effort a confused activity with accomplishment do you have the ability to at least go down keeping your torso parallel to the angle of your shin. Can you get full knee flexion on a squat? And that's gonna be largely determined upon if your center of mass is so far back, your balance is gonna be coordinated to adjusting for your torso, not for your shin angle, and therefore not for the flexion of your knee. So we've taken a movement pattern that's supposed to be lengthening the quadricep, not necessarily the the posterior chain and I'll be honest the, the idea to create pretension on the hamstrings you already have it Christ almighty it's called the anterior tilt majority of the folks especially if you have a wide ISA and what they call a lifted pump handle or sternum elevated forcing some sort of lordotic position and pulling on the psoas and the iliacus, that's gonna pull that pelvis into this forward dump position. The pelvis will react to this, the, this, the thorax. If the pump handle's pulled up, we go into this nutated position where we push the pelvis down and forward. The sacrum counterbalances that, and then all of a sudden we have this lengthening of the hamstring, specifically the long head or the biarticular one. 
And then we start to look at it from, or the biceps femoris, and we start to look at that from, oh yeah, let's push your butt back to create more tension, which further lifts the pump handle, which further goes into lordosis, which further anterior tilts. And then we force them to go to a certain depth. And then all of a sudden that pelvis now has to react to that thorax that now is in a different position and has to reorient. And that's where you see this butt wake or going from an anterior to posterior tilt or from a nutated to a counter-nutated position. And you start to think about this from the context of, do we have control or do we not? And what I would say is, if you can't control joints unrelated to knee flexion during a squat or hip flexion during a hinge, you don't have control. But how do we do that? We pack. We create tension and we create stability in joints that we don't want to use. And this is a tensegrity strategy. It's compression. This is a tensing strategy in terms of the tissues around there, in terms of the tissue targeted tissues we're trying to create tension in. This is a motor pattern function, which babies learn to do as they go from this, this prone supine, quadruped half kneeling, tall or tall kneeling, half kneeling, standing, locomoting Homo sapien, who doesn't have the force ability to do, move. But what do we can what what do we can learn from that is we have these strategies built in. And then it gets to this, okay, we're gonna leverage these movement patterns, a squat, hinge, and lunge, to create some sort of adaptation. And that's when we start to adopt this bigger systemic strategy of can I create stability in my ankle joint when I'm trying to create knee flexion? How do I do that? Do I grip the ground with my feet? Do I take my sensory deprivation chambers off, and aka my shoes, and start to create this, this foot arch and this rotated out position of my tibia, relatively speaking, to my knee while I'm trying to create knee flexion? Maybe. Do I start to grip the bar harder? Do I start to pull my chin down and in? And as we start to break down you know, a lot of these patterns and a lot of these expressions of forces, you know, one of the things that certain tools do versus others is allow us to do this. And one of the things that we start to do is look at these tools and the way we can leverage those tools and stress the environment to really create more of what that functioning output that we want. So if you go on the module, you can see some exercise description. So I got a kettlebell swing. And then off of that, where's your neck? Where's your elbow? Where's your shoulder? Where's your wrist? Right? You think about it from the analogy of punching, right? And if you're going to punch with a, a flaccid wrist or a loose elbow or a unpacked shoulder blade or you don't know how to rotate and create power from the bottom up, you can see power dissipates. Forces go into wrong joints and people get hurt. They break their wrist. They break their hand. You know, if we were increasing range of motion, like on a deficit deadlift, or if we're going to increase the, if we're going to increase the stability or the, the balance command by going to a single leg, if we were going to increase the amplitude by going into like a speed, like let's say that we start to do snatch pulls or we start to do a muscle snatch, what would happen? 
I'm still hinging primarily, but I've changed the tool, I've changed the range of motion, I've changed the speed, I've changed the endpoint, and we further created this dynamic that challenges where we recreate tension and how do we manage mechanical disadvantage at greater ranges in different environments with different tools. And my ability to maintain <coughs> force, velocity, and work at various degrees of range of motion and on top of it with various tools like a barbell or kettlebell determines the overall impact from that exercise. That if I'm targeting the hip in a hinge dominant pattern, can I create stability in the joints that I don't want to work? And if I can't, that's a problem. That's not gonna create the tension, the length tension, the force tension, within the muscle groups that I'm trying to target from that, that set exercise. And then the results I get from that set exercise are what? Again, I completed the task, but I didn't complete it with the way I wanted to to get the targeted effect. And that's what we're thinking about. That pattern should have standards. Patterns should have some sort of definable, executable strategies. Right? Can I get as much hip flexion on a hinge pattern as possible with a vertical shin packed stack spine from the sacrum all the way up to the cervical can I have a packed shoulder with my humerus externally rotated to really sit within that shoulder joint that glenar humeral joint and then thinking about it from the context of can I create either high forces high velocities or go for a long duration while maintaining that and you see it all the time. What do people do when they start to get fatigued? What do people do when they start to get to these length tension end relationships? They start to adopt the strategy where they shift mechanical tension away to find a more mechanically advantaged position. Shift their center of mass forward, bend their knees prematurely, start to lift their head or can have a lot of funky wonky movements that we don't want. That can be looked at it from a tensegrity standpoint as a dissipation of force taking tension off of the wrong tissues and creating more compression in the other in the wrong joints. That could be looked at as like an energy leak. And I would even go another step further is what does this look like when we hit the frontal and transverse plane? And that's where it gets a little bit more tricky and nuanced because we're thinking about it. Yes, we are prepared for a three-dimensional chaotic world. So I need to think about having standardized movement within multiple planes of motion. So a lot of times we'll throw in there and looking at things like a lateral swing and saying from the context of, if I was gonna swing a, a like mace or an Indian club in the frontal or transverse plane, how would that look in terms of a hinge? Can I abduct my hip while still maintaining a vertical shin and a, a neutral spine? Maybe I have a little centering effect where the cervical spine stays intact, but my thorax rotates. Ah, now we got a little different effect there to talk about. Centering is centration. It's the same thing. Then I'm packing certain joints and we're creating rotation 
to counter the forces in the frontal and transverse plane, more so than in sagittal. Haha, now we gotta think about this from, okay, we are, we're not creating randomness and chaos. We're using and adopting strategies with external, with implements, maybe potentially to create external load to get more force, get more velocity, get more work. But we have to adopt a strategy that's now more respectful and appreciative of that. And that's why the thorax and the pelvis rotates. Not really thought about a lot, but the ribs rotate, relatively speaking, to the sternum and the thoracic spine. The ribs can externally and internally rotate, that they're malleable. That's why we have open ribs. That's why we have cartilage between our sternum and our actual rib cage. Same thing for the pelvis. Pelvis rotates along that sacrum. They're not, it's not a fusiform joint. There's connective tissue in between. The pelvis moves separately from the sacrum. The ilium, the iliac crest, the ischium. You ever see that ischium tuberosity? It's just a big connective tissue thing. That moves, that rotates. So as we start to create thoracic or thorax rotation and sacropelvic rotation, we have adopted a strategy of packing and centering the other joints, the cervical spine, the lumbar spine. Maybe we're rotating that, that contralateral arm and that contralateral leg in internally rotation, but the other one's going into external rotation. And then there's a counteracting force there. And we might need to create centration and pack other joints, like the knee. And I think about this from the context of all we're doing is challenging the environment, challenging the movement pattern with various ranges of motion under various external loads or various speeds or various durations in multiple planes of motion and seeing how well we are or how equipped we are of controlling the joints that we don't want to use and that gives us feedback. And then from there, I can adopt a strategy of cueing, packing, creating stability in certain joints that we don't want to move or articulate, or we could take those joints away and we can start to create a motor pattern just like what we do if I was my baby is learning how to walk that organically creates the solutions that we want. And this is the point of centration. This is the trip. This is the baton handed from these isolated things from a concept or a model based approach of flexibility, mobility, capsular space into looking at things like levers and tensegrity and all the way through to this next level of integrating into a deeper, more fundamental type of programming. That is the magic. That's a secret sauce. I hope this is something that you guys are looking at and saying, this makes sense, but really de in depth. This is why I highly recommend getting on stuff with DNS. I highly recommend looking at getting stuff with Charlie Weingroff and highly recommend getting on stuff with Function Movement Screen because the bottom line is if you don't have these tools at your arsenal, are we really preparing our athletes the best we possibly can? We can't have 
all the things that we want without understanding all the corresponding models that are applied. Hope you guys appreciate this. Um, honestly, like what I'm gonna do here next week with a case study perspective is to break down a functional movement screen and table test and seeing how that applies to certain movement patterns and what I would do from taking joints away or adding joints back in. Appreciate you guys. Get on that PH podcast. It's going to make a big difference.